HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. Today's program is brought to you by Wisconsin Cheese. Did you know that Wisconsin leads the nation in the production of specialty cheeses, accounting for 47% of the total? To learn more, visit wisconsincheese.com. Hey, thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network. This is Katie, HRN Executive Director, and I'm so excited to share with you our coverage from the Charleston Wine and Food Festival. We are here live today at Charleston Wine and Food. Join us as we talk all things food. Come to Charleston, eat some seafood. Eat all of the seafood. Chicken fried chicken with chorizo steak and salsa verde mashed potatoes. So quintessentially like Southern fare at its finest. And have important conversations. We're also talking about professional women in restaurants and how underrepresented they are. People of color in restaurants and how they're not talked about. We get real with Food Network's Manit Chohan. Balance is BS. <laughs> uh, I, I, I was, yeah, I was told that uh, I wasn't going to be bleeped out. And find out about raising sugarcane with Chef Sean Brock. It's like being Indiana Jones or something. You never know what you're going to find. You'll come away inspired by the power of food and the food scene in Charleston. Here's Dr. Jessica B. Harris. Food is constantly in flux. Food is always moving. Food is the only real lingua franca that we have that allows us to connect with other folks. So tune in to Heritage Radio Network on tour at heritageradionetwork.org or wherever you get your podcasts. You can't go wrong. All right, it is Monday. It is 12.03. This is What Doesn't Kill You, Food Industry Insights. I'm your host, Katie Kiefer, and today my guest is... Katie Kiefer. <laughs> Thank you, Dave. Thank you. Thank you, everyone. Thank you to all my listeners. Um, and if you're tuning in for the first time, this is actually going to be a little bit of a, um, well, you know, I'm going to do a little bragging, but I'm also going to do a little recapping um, because this is also the 10th year of my broadcasting on Heritage Radio Network. And um, as I was sitting listening to the promo just before the show opened uh, about the Charleston Wine and Food Festival, which we have covered for the last few years, I just marvel at the growth of this station overall and the incredible work that's being done by so many of the people, by everyone who comes comes in and does their show week in and week out, um, and by the amazing staff that we have that help us uh, to do those things. Um, so, but as far as my own show goes, you know, I've gone through a bunch of different um, iterations here. I started out doing the show 10 years ago with Patrick Martins, who is our founder. Um, he's, you know, this was his brainchild, and he... 
uh, was kind enough to bring me in to do the main course with him, which I did for about two and a half years, I think. Um, and then because the show was unbelievably long and frankly, completely incoherent, um, I mean, we would all... <laughs> No knock on Patrick, but I mean, we would have some really crazy episodes, uh, which involved- I am Patrick Martins. <laughs> right. Uh, which would involve, you know, guests who would be rounded up literally minutes before the show started. You know, we'd have no idea. I would have no idea who they were. Of course, Patrick would know them because they were his friends. But, you know, it would just be absolute pandemonium. We'd have like six, eight, ten guests in the studio. You Nothing know. has changed, Katie. Yeah. <laughs> Well, certainly my show has changed, <laughs> and I've changed. I mean, the the show has really morphed into uh, kind of an interesting place at this point. I just, um, I'm not quite done with my dairy series. Um, so those of you who haven't tuned in for a while, I've done about uh, six or seven programs at this point, uh, focusing on the American dairy industry and why it is failing. Um, and I've brought in uh, all kinds of economists and professors from, you know, agricultural extension schools and uh, organic farming and you name it, I've tried to cover it. And uh, I'm hoping that I'll be able to wrap this up in the next few weeks with Tom Vilsack, who was our former Secretary of Agriculture and who, like so many others in government, uh, revolved out of government and right into a lobbying organization called the United States uh, Dairy Export uh, USDEF, United States Dairy Export Federation or Foundation, I'm not quite sure. Um, easy to look up. And um, and they tell me there that Tom Vilsack would be delighted to be on my program. Unfortunately, today he was in Brazil. Otherwise, I wouldn't be doing this show if I'd gotten him on the air. Um, but anyway, I thought this was a good time to step back and look at some of the work that um, that I've, some of the guests I've been lucky enough to, uh, to secure for your listening pleasure. And I just wanted to go over some of my earlier um, programs. For example, I saw when I went through the archives, I couldn't see everything that I have done. And I, as I said, it's, I'm 10 years into this. So it's from 2008. Um, I really could not find my programming uh, until about 2012. But in 2012, I had Dr. James Johnson on to talk about antibiotics in the food system. I think he was my first guest to cover that topic. And the first one who really um, sounded the alarm bells for me in a very significant way. And, uh, you know, it's sad to say that not a whole lot of progress has been made on that front. Um, although uh, uh, in the years uh, following that, we had in 2011... Um, 2012, 2013, I think it was 2013, they signed uh, some sort of legislation. I feel like James Johnson was way younger, way earlier than 2012. But anyway, whatever. He came on, and then so, subsequent to that, the... Um, the United States, uh, the FDA began imposing these voluntary, they were voluntary guidances um, that were supposed to help uh, farmers and corporations wean their livestock off of antibiotics. And of course, this is and remains and will continue to be the greatest threat to public health uh, that exists today, short of nuclear war, in my opinion. Um, so uh, that that has really, those, those voluntary guidances, yeah, nothing really changed there. And then in 2017, uh, we had, they were sort of implemented in a more direct fashion and certain things were uh, regulated more strictly. But we really still have a very serious problem with this issue. And it's something that people, you know, it, it hit the news. Um, and most recently in Marin McKenna, who has been a, a really quite frequent guest on the show to talk about this issue over the years. Um, her book, Big Chicken, came out, and she um, obviously talks a lot about the poultry industry, which is a, 
you know, a, a leading uh, abuser of antibiotics. And um, it's fa- it's, it was fascinating to me to, to realize that I had gone back that far and really so little has yet to change in terms of really strictly regulating antibiotics in the food system the way they have done in Europe, um, which they started doing in 1997. I mean, their, their alarm bells started going off around 95, and by 97, uh, many countries in the, in the uh, EU had either banned or severely restricted the use of antibiotics in livestock agriculture. Um, unfortunately, it hasn't been a total and complete fix. Some, some of their uh, anti, uh, multidrug-resistant bacteria have um, remained. For instance, they have a lot of problems still with listeria, um, but they have managed to get their salmonella numbers down. In this country, you know, it's just, we don't have that. <laughs> there is no diminution of numbers in terms of anti uh, multi-drug resistant bacteria in this country. And I can tell you that in other countries, for example, China, they are now at the point of using uh, the sort of last drug of last resort called colistin, um, which is a very strong and old drug uh, that is only used because um, because there is no other drug that can now combat some of these multi-drug resistant bacteria. So it's 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 something that people should be keeping at front of mind at all times because we don't want to find ourselves in a situation where surgery cannot be performed safely because we have multi-drug resistant pathogens in hospitals, and we see that already with C. difficile and with with uh, MRSA, um, these are these are the byproducts of um, of excessive use of antibiotics in in society as well as in agriculture. And you know the agricultural community went for years, and I think still to this day continues to uh, protest that it's not their fault. It's really human medicine. Uh, you know, doctors prescribe antibiotics for colds, blah blah blah. But that's not really happening so much anymore. Doctors and, and hospitals have gotten a lot more savvy about this, and they have really restricted many of their um, excesses uh, from the past. And I, I think it's it's incumbent upon the animal agricultural industry to really step up to the plate on this. Um, so that's that's one thing, one one topic that I, I co- covered quite extensively, and um, just wanted to leave you with that little parting note about it. Another thing I did a lot of um, back in 2012 and 13 and 14, was talk about agricultural gag laws. Um, again, this is a topic that has faded from the news, but believe me, it is still an ongoing issue. Um, and this is uh, legislation that uh, farming uh, states tend to impose uh, largely to hide excesses of animal abuse in um in uh, uh, animal agricultural operations. Now, animal welfare in general has improved quite dramatically, uh, but there's still a lot of abuse um, both in large and small packing, uh, packing uh, and processing uh, facilities. And, and that's something that people should continue to be concerned about um, and really make you want to say, where is my meat coming from? I want to know where this, where this originated from. And it's usually, it's not a farmer or a rancher who is abusing their animals because that's not what they do. It's, it's a processing facility that aggregates the animals and um, may or may not have well-trained staff to deal with them. So it's, that's always an issue uh, that needs to be kept, um, kept to the front of mind. But, but there, I will say in the defense of the animal agricultural industry, they've made some real strides in progress there. Um, and largely because of consumer protest. Um, so there's, there's a great example of how you can see that you know, voting with your food dollars actually does have an impact. Writing into companies does have an impact. And um, organizations like Chick-fil-A and even McDonald's, for heaven's sake, uh, have really made differences in their supply chain. 
And that leads me to one of my, my, my most exciting guests that I had in my early days here, and that was Temple Grandin, um, the wonderful, extraordinary woman uh, who has designed um, and, and promoted animal welfare uh, you know, um, uh, improvements uh, over the last three decades. Um, she has just revolutionized the way animal processors uh, manage their animals when they come in off the trucks from ranches and farms, and um, and it's it's had a tremendous impact on the industry overall. And she is just she's still working hard. She's still doing the do, and she's you know just because she's not on TV in the in the fancy biopic, she shouldn't be forgotten. I mean, I, I have the most tremendous respect and admiration for Temple Grandin. And for those of you who may not be familiar with her work, I strongly urge you to seek out her books. Um, she writes both about autism, um, but also uh, my favorite book of hers is How Animals Make Us Human. And she describes sort of various um, aspects of animals' perceptions and why why, and why not they get frightened or uh, skittish about things. And in the context both of autism and also in animal welfare, it's, it's a terrific book and I really recommend it. Other topics that I covered um, quite extensively were fracking. Now, nobody thinks about fracking because it was banned in New York, right? Well, it was banned in New York uh, because there was so much public pressure. And I'm, I'm happy to say that I was, even though I, my audience was relatively small at the time, I had a lot of programs around fracking. Um, I saw it as a tremendous threat to upstate New York communities. Um, I saw it as a, as a threat to our water supply, which indeed it would have been. Um, and I was, I, you know, I was proud that I was able to to make those programs happen. I had the American Farmland Trust on. I even had somebody from a fracking company. I remember having this completely chaotic experience where I had two guests on, um, one from... Um, from a uh, an energy company that was seeking to promote fracking in in the state of New York, they were a lobbyist. They, they, he was a lobbyist, and the other was um, was an advocate for you know American farm or for New York State farming communities, and it was. I I and my my anti fracking guest were so outgunned, so out talked, so outsmarted by this incredible slick willy from the energy sector. I mean, we were just literally speechless. We couldn't get a word in edgewise. I had no idea how to control this guest. I had only been doing the show for a couple of years, and believe me, it takes a while to kind of. You know, get your get your big boy boots on when you're doing this stuff. It's you know you're always hit with a curveball with guests, um, unless you plan as carefully as I do. <laughs> but that was uh, to me that was a really notable program, and I learned a lot from both of those guests. And I, I you know I started attending rallies, and I started encouraging other people to do so. And I wrote to my governor, and in the end, Andrew Cuomo did the right thing. And he banned fracking in the United in in New York State, so that was very cool. Another guest that I had on a lot was a wonderful guy named Dixon Despommier, who was the granddaddy of the concept of vertical farming, and he is a professor at Columbia University in. Um, I think in public health, believe it or not. And he designed as a project for his graduate students, uh, he, he commissioned them essentially to come up with ideas for feeding, uh, healthily feeding uh, urban areas uh, in the absence of, you know, just to kind of take the burden off or whatever, to grow local. I think it was all about growing local. Because at the time, you know, 10 years ago, growing local was like, woo, 
ooh, big deal. Everybody wanted to grow local, eat local, you know, and it's still, I mean, I'm still supportive of that idea. Um, but I also see that it has its limitations and I think, you know, most people do at this point, but it was, it was the watchword and Dixon de Pommier was very instrumental in creating this concept of vertical farming. And he was a wonderful guest. I highly recommend listening back to those shows if you can find them. Um, I could not, <laughs> but you know, we're going to try to rectify that. And I also talked a lot about urban farms because that was when um, things like uh, the Brooklyn Grange were uh, coming on, um, Eagle something farms, uh, Gotham Greens. Now you see Gotham Greens produce in markets all over New York City now. Uh, That was when they just started back then. This was like, you know, eight years ago. They were just getting off the ground. They'd gotten their final round of funding to build the facility. It's a hydroponic facility. It's one of the largest of its kind. I also interviewed a guy who started Bright Farms, which was a and I, it's still an ongoing concern where they build rooftop farms on top of grocery stores to grow produce, which I thought was a really interesting idea. So you know, it's fun to think back on on all of these trends and stuff that have happened, and that now people kind of take for granted. And urban farming and um, vertical farming, which has somewhat caught on around the world, there's some big vertical farms um, in various different countries. I think Japan has been really interested in it because of their lack of arable land, um, and I think other countries that are water challenged have also been really interested in it. So we'll see what happens with that. I mean, in 20 more years, I expect it will be very mainstream. Um, we certainly don't hear much about it now, but it's, it's again, a topic that I think is worth revisiting. I've done a lot of work around um, sustainable seafood, too. I have a regular guest uh, who's been coming on the show for years named Timothy Fitzgerald, who works with the Environmental Defense Fund. And he talks a lot about um, supporting sustainable fisheries and how do we manage sustainable fisheries. And and the Magnuson-Stephen Act, which passed in the 1990s, which um, imposed a very controversial uh, program on fishermen called Catch Shares, um, you know, prior to that, there were no quotas, or there were quotas, uh, but they would result in these kind of crazy tournaments where fishermen were allowed to go out and, you know, fish for uh, sea bass for six weeks out of the year, and they would catch as much sea bass as they possibly could, um, and then they would come back in, and of course, the price would plummet because <laughs> because there was a glut on the market. Um, so the catch share program was designed to try to avoid that type of... of um, of excessive sort of dumping of one species over another and um, at the same time also support uh, fishermen who were trying to bring different types of fish to the consumer market uh, like sea robin or or other less uh, lesser known uh, but of no less quality type fish that are indigenous to local waters. New England, for example, is, is awash in sea robin. I can't say that I see it on every single menu in every single restaurant in New England, but, you know, I'd like to see more of that. And there are some really interesting organizations out there um, – Eating with the Ecosystem, I think, is the one that I know the best, which uh, came out of Rhode Island, I believe. And um, the woman, the young woman who started that was like fresh out of college. And she employs, um, she gets chefs together to agree to produce meals made from one or two indigenous species that are local to that area, that are seasonal to that area. And then they do a whole sort of educational format around that. And I, I wish there were more organizations like Eating with the Ecosystem. Maybe they are. And if there are, and you're one of them, uh, please contact me either on my show page at Heritage or on What Doesn't Kill You Food Industry Institute. Insights with Katie Kiefer, which is my Facebook page, which, believe it or not, I occasionally update 
I'm absolutely the worst at social media. Or you can tweet to me on K, uh, Katie Kiefer, at Katie Kiefer. Yeah, that's my handle, right? I think that's my handle. Um, I changed it because I had something incomprehensible for that, which I will not bore you with. But anyway, so sustainable seafood has been something I've talked a lot about. And then I remember I had this really great, oh my God, I've already filled 20 minutes. <laughs> I hope you're still listening. <laughs> Um, and then uh, there's water wars, uh, and water quality. And that's, that's a subject that I'm going to come back to because as climate change progresses and mind you, I started talking about water supplies again, really at least five, six, seven years ago. I remember reading, uh, and interviewing, uh, Alex Prudhomme for his book, The Ripple Effect, which had a big impact on me. I thought that was a very interesting book. I strong, again, recommend it highly. And it was, uh, really a, an examination of how water and water rights are distributed in the United States and what's happening around the world with water and water rights. Um, water is going to be the thing we fight wars over in the coming generations. And I, I really, uh, think it's something that we all need to be thinking about much more carefully. Um, California, Californians, of course, <laughs> already facing the worst of that uh, because once again they have no snowpack this year. Snowpack is what surprise supplies the California water system uh, to a great extent, and um, and I think that uh, last year's lush greenery uh, is going to give way to another really serious drought this year. So that'll be um, the most unfortunate, and will probably also coincide with another tremendous wildfire season. Um, and you know who knows what will happen beyond that. Uh, so that's something that that I will be continuing to focus on in my future shows. I'm thinking about doing another long series about that. To be honest with you, I you know I really enjoyed doing the dairy series, and um, I think the water series could be a very interesting piece of programming for the next uh, you know six weeks or so. Today's program was brought to you by Wisconsin Cheese. What do you think of when you hear Wisconsin Cheese? For me, I think cheese curds, delicious, fresh and squeaky cheese curds, or deep fried cheese curds. Cheese curds literally anyway, anytime, any place. I think about Andy Hatch and Upland's Cheese, the farmstead cheese company behind Pleasant Ridge Reserve. I think of delicious, stinky Limburger and its long storied history. I think of Dunbarton Blue, made by master cheesemaker Chris Raleigh. I think of Ross Grand Cru Sirchois, which was named 2016's World Championship Cheese, and Satori's Black Pepper Bellavitano, the 2017 U.S. Championship Cheese. Wisconsin produces the world's best cheese with lush grasslands and a glacial water supply that produce the very best milk. Fourth-generation cheesemakers combine old-world tradition with new ideas and the highest standards to make innovative cheeses that win more awards than any other state or country. To learn more, visit wisconsincheese.com. The, the thing that I've learned the most in the 10 years that I've been doing this show, and I will wrap this up pretty soon, is that I have learned that agriculture in the United States is basically ruining rural communities. And the reason that is happening is because, as in so many other industries in this world that we live in, in our globalized world, uh, every industry has consolidated to the point where there are often no more than three, four, or five big players uh, within each sector. So, for example, you know, people worry about the 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 um, the the merger between, or rather, I say the, the the sale of Monsanto to Bayer, which is a very large Swiss agrochemical company. 
And <clears throat> the, the the dangers of of having companies like that become mega companies, mega agribusinesses, is that it cuts down on the competition uh, that allows farmers to have choices about where they buy their seeds and what types of seeds or chemicals that they're going to use on their farms. And this this speaks directly to our food security uh, on the long term level. And that's and it's and it is something that has occurred throughout the agricultural sector, as indeed it has in many others. I mean, the electronics uh, industry is very consolidated, telecommunications are very consolidated. And this has happened uh, in the agricultural community as well. And it really does mean that we as consumers have fewer choices on our grocery sell- shelves, it's that's being determined by factors that are that have nothing to do with rural America and with what our farmers and ranchers are buying, um, or are growing, and uh, and it and it and it means that um, that there's a lot of price fixing going on, which is something that I think many consumers don't really realize. But as there are fewer and fewer people to buy from, uh, it allows groceries. Those those companies from which we buy those groceries are able to fix that price, uh, even if it's not out and out collusion. Uh, on price fixing, it is just kind of what happens because there are so few people in the marketplace, they're all going to copy each other. And right now, there are a number of class action suits going on uh, against poultry producers for price fixing in two directions. One, in terms of the the amount of money that they pay the, the farmer who raises their uh, livestock, and two, especially, I mean, raises their birds, and two, uh, t- they are also price fixing to the grocery store um, uh, section so that the prices are unnaturally higher than they normally would be or should be, uh, given what the price is of poultry f- that is being given to the producer. So so that's something, you know, people should really be paying attention to. These, these corporations... Um, you know they they claim that their their efficiencies uh, by consolidation it's 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 streamlining costs it's getting rid of excessive personnel it's uh, you know uh, streamlining the supply chain and theoretically that's all going to result in lower prices for us but it's that's really not what's happening uh, those prices are not coming down they're going up those corporations are making more money and those dividends are being paid to shareholders that are really almost obscene. Uh, and certainly in terms of how it has had an impact on rural America, on farmers and ranchers, and specifically and terribly on the dairy industry, uh, is something that every American should be very concerned about. Um, and I, I really urge you to just, you know, kind of pay attention to that stuff. It's just, just so, so expensive. And to talk about for a second about the Dairy uh, Farmers of America, which is the largest dairy co-op in the country, um, they help fix prices but the prices are also based on the Chicago Mercantile Exchange as a commodity. And here's something that I've also learned in my 10 years of doing this show. Food should not be considered a commodity that we trade in futures because therein lies uh, you know, terrible fluctuations in price that have extraordinary impacts on poor people uh, and on developing countries. Uh, when the price of rice goes up artificially because of something that happens on the Chicago Mercantile Exchange, there are riots. People are hungry. This is wrong. So I'm. I. I would like to see you know somebody figure out how we can take food out of the mercantile exchange. I don't think that that should be traded in futures. It's just wrong, and it also determines the cost of, of milk in a way that is 
still somewhat <laughs> murky to me, I have to admit. I'm not an economist, let me just tell you this. I'm not a math person. I'm not an economist. I have struggled to understand what my guests are telling me a lot of the times. Um, I struggle to come up with intelligent questions for them because I find this so very complex. And I don't have an educational background that supports that. So it's really, I've learned everything on the fly, in this chair, and from reading. Um, and you can too. <laughs> you too can become an insufferable bore on the subject of agriculture. <laughs> Or just listen to my show and keep your yap shut. No. <laughs> Write to your congressman, but don't tell your friends. Um, but the Chicago Mercantile Exchange, uh, actually, um, it trades milk as a commodity, right? So it essentially sets the price, which the USDA then administers or dole, or assigns that their value of milk. Because the USDA sets dairy prices, right? But they set the value of milk based on the Chicago Mercantile Exchange. And right now, the cost of milk is less, in other words, the price, I mean to say the price of milk is less than the cost of production. So uh, when farmers are getting $13 a hundredweight for you know a certain class of milk, they are losing money on every single gallon of milk that they produce. And that is just wrong. And that should be changed. I sound like my guest for next week, who, believe me, will tell you a lot about what's wrong. Um, the same thing goes for the big meat companies, uh, Tyson, Cargill, JBS, uh, Smithfield, even though they're owned by the Chinese now. That's another thing that really drives me nuts, by the way. Uh, the fact that we sold an enormous company like Smithfield to the Chinese is wrong, people. That should not have happened because what that meant is that the 400 farms, the 38 or 40 processing centers, all of those people who are now employed by a Chinese company, um, all of those resources that come from our land, our soil, our water are basically being shipped overseas to feed the Chinese population. And it's not that I have a beef with the Chinese, and I think they've made a really good deal for themselves, but I have a big beef with the Justice Department for allowing that sale to go through. That was stupid and short-sighted, and we will be sorry if we do stuff like that again, I guarantee you. Because again, it speaks to future food security, and that's the big picture, people. You want to think about the fact that your food needs to come in large measure from the United States, just like every other country feeds themselves largely from their own farming. We don't do that so much. We import an enormous amount of food, and we sell a lot of our food overseas for higher prices. There is something very wrong with that. Um, I think I did mention those class action suits in the poultry sector, but what I learned recently from one of my um, conversations with uh, someone from the National uh, Dairy Producers Organization is that the class action suit doesn't actually mean justice for anyone, for the farmers um, or the ranchers or the poultry producers or the dairy farmers or whoever. The class action suit essentially allows the bad actor um, – a large, typically a large corporation like Dairy Farmers of America or, uh, or you know, uh, Pilgrim's Pride, Poultry or Sanderson, Purdue, you know, Tyson, etc. It essentially allows them to shut people up for a certain amount of money. So the class action suit, if it's awarded in favor of the plaintiff, there's a certain amount of money that goes out. And then that's the end of that argument. In other words, they can't, 
continue to lobby against. There's like basically it's 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 a done deal. So out of the enormous profits that these companies make or have. Uh, off the backs of farmers, ranchers, and co-op producers, they then have basically settled those charges, and it it, it is therefore done. It's a moot point, and there's really no recourse for those people. They'll get their little bit of money, and then they can't continue to claim uh, claim against these companies, and that's the end of the dispute, and that means that nothing actually changes. So that's something to think about when you think read about class action suits. It sounds like it's going to do a good thing. It's not really. It's just an opportunity for a company to pay off the people who are bugging it and keep on doing business as usual. And that isn't right. So basically, uh, you know, what I have learned sitting in this seat for 10 years is that it all comes down to politics. And it all comes down to voting with your food dollars, but more importantly, voting with your vote. Um, organizations like Food Policy Action uh, that was started by Tom Colicchio, you know, six or seven years ago. Um, Tom has stepped away, but that organization is still going strong. And they have a really great website where you can go online and look at how uh, the various, all of our representation, be it senators, be it congressmen, um, how they are voting on uh, on on food issues or issues that affect food, including farm bill, including antitrust legislation, including um, class action suits or whatever it is. No, not class action suits, but anything, any kind of legislation that affects um, rural America and farmers and ranchers. You'll see what those voting records are. And that's something that, you know, really people should be paying attention to. It Again, it all comes down to food security and access to water, because I'm telling you people, that's going to be the next big thing. Really, we need to be attention, paying attention to that. So um, I'm going to say thank you to my sponsor, which I guess is Wisconsin Cheese. <laughs> Since you couldn't shut me up long enough to make a sponsor drop. <laughs> but maybe you'll find a spot to stick that in there. Although I don't think so. I've barely drawn a breath in 32 minutes. But um, thank you for listening to my show, people. Thank you for letting me continue to do what I do um, and what the rest of us here on this station platform do. Uh, because I think that there's really nothing more important and there's nothing that unites us more than food. It really is the great... Um, you know, sort of the great, uh, as Jessica B. Harris put it, the lingua franca of all communities and all nations. So uh, my appreciation for the support of the community um, for uh, keeping us on the air as a, as a platform and keeping me um, entertained for all these 10 years because there is nothing I like more than sponging up some more information about the food system. So I really appreciate the support. Thanks for listening, folks. And we'll be back next week with a real show with a real guest. Stay tuned for that. Bye-bye now. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content and to hear about exclusive events, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization, driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be a part of the food world's most innovative community? 
rate the shows you like, tell your friends, and please join our community by becoming a member. Just click on the beating heart at the top right of our homepage. Thanks for listening.